0: Today, we have Avery Bang. She is the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity. Uh, They have helped over a million people uh, to get access to um, hospital facilities, school facilities, uh, working environments um, throughout the world. So uh, by providing these pedestrian bridges, she also has uh, her Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering from the U- University of Iowa, and she also has a Bachelor of Arts degree <laughs> um, in Studio Arts from the University of Iowa, a Master's degree from CU Boulder in Geotechnical Engineering, and a uh, MBA from Oxford, Oxford, I believe, right? Um, I like school a lot, apparently. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and also a very distinguished spe- speaker with over 100 speaking engagements um, in the books for audience up to 5,000 people, including, I believe, an event for the UN and then a couple of TED Talks too. So I would like to welcome Miss Avery Bang, uh, and I guess maybe, One question I have for you to get started with is maybe what sparks these passions for you? So you have a lot of things on your resume, a lot of things that you do that you're very passionate about. So maybe if you could focus on one of those sparks uh, that occurred or something that really fueled that passion for you.
1: That's a good question. I think a lot of our true essence is really there as a kid. And then we spend our teenage years and sometimes our 20s moving away from, and then you can kind of come back into that core. Like, who are you at the very, you know, middle of, of, of your, your core center? And as a kid, you know, I had a chance to play clarinet. It was awful. So there's both bad at and uninteresting. Similarly with, you know, softball, I just couldn't quite figure out how to throw it far enough. But there were these things that, like, I think there's this kind of um, self- propelling convenience that you're okay enough at them that they give you pleasure. And I think what I ended up like noticing about the things that gave me pleasure and fun was I was a lot more motivated by the things that were in a together in a group in a team. Like I was a pretty terrible swimmer. So I didn't like to be alone in that lane. And I certainly didn't want to go swim by myself in that lane. But when I could go to soccer practice, and i could see the interweavings of how this web of individuals on this field came together to do something uh feels you know, kind of like bigger than yourself i loved it i could just like see that fire in my belly and i'm like 7 years old you know kicking around with really no vision of the field but that was like you know getting excited about people for me ended up fueling a lot of the things i ended up you know here in my mid 30s really being oh most of what I do, which I really enjoy, is usually with people. And most of which I kind of get, not bored by, because that's not, it's a little simple, but things that I can't, I don't find the the time or the willpower to continue doing are usually things that are solitary um, and and don't seem to have an impact on others. So, do you want me to give you an example or is that enough of a? (laughs) Well, I think that,
0: well, that brought up something so I think it's really neat how like you consider yourself a connection person. Um, and I think it's so cool how with Bridges to Prosperity, it ties in like an actual physical connection between these people that need to get across a river um, to get to essential services. And then the people connection. So just connecting with people. I love the literal and um, figurative sides of that. And I think it just totally ties together. So that's, Really neat, um, but yeah. If you want to give like an actual example of that too, if you can think of one, if not, that's fine too.
1: Yeah, um, I think a really pointed example was I was living in Fiji at the end of college, and you know, coming back over to return to uh, hopefully all goes as well, finish my uh, engineering degree at the University of Iowa, and they have these year-end projects, kind of like you know your culminating senior project, and. You're going through the queue and kind of looking at what projects you essentially want to get excited about. And you know I think there's a misconception that engineers really are solitary people, all of them. And they only want to sit down and be really good with a spreadsheet. To be clear, I can make a mean spreadsheet, but <laughs> I wanted something that was more. And so I'm like going down the queue of these projects and I don't think my experience was unique in that as I looked across the options, I was pretty uninspired. And I was like, "Well, okay, I'm, this is going to be just another class project." And I think you brought this up earlier. Is like the enterprising part of me essentially came back to the center and said, "Well, hey, professor, what would you think about if I proposed my own project? And what if we were to imagine building a bridge in some place like Peru? You know, something really wild." And you know, you first get these reactions, especially from adults. And at that time, I kind of considered myself a young adult. And there's first deep skepticism, and then there's like, huh, okay, why? And then it ends up, like, you can kind of convert that that, uh, questioning into something of, like, a shared enthusiasm. But it was this project where I imagined myself sitting alone in a dark computer lab for dozens and dozens and dozens of hours to come up with this senior project. And I was gonna learn something from it. I was gonna be a better engineer. There was gonna be an outcome. I'm sure at some time in life I was gonna appreciate. But the moment that they said yes, when they're like, go get four or five of your best friends. Yes, let's design a bridge and totally go take your summer and go learn how to actually build the bridge in a place that you hardly know where it's at. And frankly, your ling- linguistic skills are poor. And, and the outcome of that was like, I was so excited. I got to work with my people. I got to learn something. I certainly spent a heck of a lot more time than I would have if I had been in this uninspiring computer lab. And meanwhile, I still was able to learn, I think a lot of the same project management skills, a lot of the same communication skills, a lot of the same, um, you know, computer modeling and and procurement ideas that I believe were the intention of that, of that project, but I did it in my own way. And I did it in a way that I knew fueled my soul. So that happens often. I'm a, create your own adventure kind of kid (laughs) so I'm often not checking the like literal linear boxes that I think some people uh, are a little more used to
0: yeah so do you do you remember that like if you even back up before that like as a kid do you remember challenging the status quo and like doing things that sparked you from a young age um do you remember do like following that same process or, or was it something that was crafted and developed as you realized that you had the confidence and the skill set to do those things?
1: Mm, yeah, I think if I'm honest with you, I definitely probably was born this way. I like to think it was curated, but I think about Lego kits. I was like such a Lego kid mm-hmm. and you could get these amazing, cool sets. And I loved the instructions. Like I actually really still to this day, really look forward to buying my ikea set and putting my little bed tinker set together but (laughs) i know it's embarrassing but at that age like i really liked to go through and make my little star wars ship i felt really satisfied there was a satisfaction at completion but what i really loved was dismantling that ship and being like what else could there be and you know i think it took a while like there got a certain point when i remember i got some lego set and i just almost couldn't be bothered to go through. I was like, what can I make that's not on the instruction sheet? So I think that that is actually uh, cultivated, I'm sure, from pre-memory, like my parents were really involved. My dad's an engineer. This is a big point of my passion is I think had I not seen him and seen how excited he was about public works and like, hey, I get to design, I actually designed that. And this is a real thing that I saw on paper and here's how it came together. You could see that light in his eye And so I think I had an appreciation for the built environment and for creating things. And uh, my mom's quite artistic in her own right. And so I think probably there's some ambient noise that I hope to be able to provide back to kids and young adults in in my own right of like, hey, this is what you can do with uh, an imagination of helping build infrastructure, whether it's in Africa or here, Um, is just being that, you know, example of someone who really loves what they do. And gets to kind of create their own adventure. It's, it's certainly not as prescriptive as I think maybe the stereotype of an engineer might be see. Yeah.
0: Well, it's just the autonomy of that. So like when you're creating your own adventure, it's something exciting and unique to you and it, it is something that you have that ownership and the autonomy to do it however you want. And there's a lot of fuel that goes with that, I think.
1: Totally. Yeah. I think I'm a fiercely independent character and I I, I imagine my mom probably had not easiest kid. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that there's something about all people have the capacity to find that inner fuel and that inner confidence and that inner interest. And it's just, sometimes those of us are lucky to have that really pulled out of us from our environment. Um, and some people have to did, work a little bit more uh, at, at getting access to it. And I think knowing that I had such deep privilege to have it come, you know, like in my environment pulled it out, I feel really, really in, invigorated and inspired to help, you know, maybe curate it in people where they didn't have that same exposure.
0: Sure, so to, I, I mean, you, you talked about this, but I wanna reiterate it a little bit. So when you had your senior design project and you started a bridge in a country, so that,
1: that was the birth of Bridges to Prosperity, right? So I got involved, it was actually, um, I wasn't, I'm not the founder, this is another thing is I actually like to be part of teams, right? So the idea of going off on my own isn't in fact like the first thing I think of, but I was living in Fiji and a long story short was I'm volunteering with a healthcare organization because I was really looking for a sense of purpose. Wasn't really yet finding that engineering for people connection that I later found. So it's like maybe I'll do some healthcare work. And we're walking out to these communities Uh, to be able to provide them with really basic preventative health care support. And we are getting to these rivers. And these rivers kept being this barrier to something so simple as talking with women about early breast cancer detection. And we came across a very simple pedestrian bridge, you know, like a little trail bridge with cables. And it just like kind of hit me, you know, like that makes it so we can get in to see these women that same bridge, there's kids running and scampering past me to go back to or from school, I'm not sure. And there's, you know, farmers holding their things above their head. Um, And so it kind of imagined like, oh, this is not that complicated. You know, we've been to engineering school. This is something you can kind of draw on a few pieces of paper and imagine how the load transfers. And it's not the easiest, but it's not the most challenging thing. And I found online So who built this bridge, unclear, who builds these bridges in low-income communities around the world. And there's really only two groups and one, um, long story short, I'm actually on the board of directors of now, but it's this very large, you know, thousands and thousands of employees, nonprofit called Helvetas in Switzerland. And they're amazing. They're literally probably the most credible and impactful nonprofit international development organization in the world, happen to do bridges as part of their bigger suite of things. And then there's this guy, Ken France, on an AOL website with his name and his photo and his personal cell phone number. And he's essentially like uh, working with Rotarians, like rotary clubs, to get a grant to go build the bridge. And at the time he didn't have any Full-time, you know, there's no employees in the U.S. And it was just essentially he'd get a bridge. He'd have people on contract. Some people longer for others. You know, he had one woman there for a little while, like a year or two. Um, but I kind of called him up and I was like, I'll build a bridge with you. And so I imagined I was helping this nonprofit. This was my give back. This was my, I'll do something nice and charitable before I go get my big girl job. Um, and that first bridge in Peru with Bridges to Prosperity, it clicked this is my team. These are my people. This is my purpose. And here's something that I think I could actually contribute to the world. Uh, I'll stick around for a little longer. And that's how I ended up writing my master's thesis at CU Boulder was actually how to use standardized bridge designs so you can uh, build them cost effectively in low income settings without testing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in short. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's
0: perfect. That totally tied it in, or it tied it together, and and I appreciate you doing that. Um, so, uh, like, what for a standard standard? <laughs> I know as engineers we're like nothing standard. Like it's all custom. But what would be like an average budget for a bridge for uh, you know for one of the pedestrian bridges? Obviously, it depends on size and all of these different things. But
1: <laughs> I like to think <laughs> I like to give people kind of a sense of magnitude first on size and then I'll get to money. Imagine about a football field. So you're in one end zone is one abutment and the other end zone is the other abutment. And that essentially means from the river somewhere in the middle, um, that might be a little longer than average, but not significantly so. So I'd say like an average bridge might be about 70 meters. So yards and meters are not terribly different. And in terms of cost, it really depends. So we, our business model is we're not trying to save you. We're here to help support whatever is unavailable locally. So example in Rwanda is the Rwandan government actually puts 40% of the money into the projects that are needed because it's so important to them. So we bring in the philanthropy, that helps support the things that might not be available locally, or frankly, just more expensive than would be in their local market. You know, We'll bring in steel pipe, we'll bring in cables that are repurposed and recycled, but also not available otherwise. Um, We'll pay for engineers to train local engineers, these things. So all in our costs range from about $60,000 US to maybe 80 to 90. Um, But what's really impressive I think is you know, you're an engineer, it's like most, most projects that would be a contingency line on one part of a budget, you know, if you Me. were to be building, <laughs> like people are like, design wait, what? <laughs> no, you can't possibly build, design, build, and, you know, get the whole asset up and running for that amount of money. That can't be possible. And it is, it is, it's, um, you know, it's a very cost effective way to connect people much cheaper than putting roads, especially if you think about a billion people around the world. It's like one in seven walk everywhere. You know they're not on bicycles and not on motorcycles. They're certainly not getting on cars or taxis. So they're walking everywhere, and they're isolated. So there's there's many billion that walk everywhere, but a billion people literally don't have physical access. So if you think about, they don't need a two million dollar road bridge. Right. They need that eighty thousand dollar trail bridge. And maybe someday when the economy booms, then let's build out the vehicular infrastructure. But I think that's why I'm really excited is that this is a low cost, high impact um, intervention. It's kind of like the jargon that graduates entire communities out of poverty. It's not just one house for one family. It's, it's a bridge that increases household level income by 30% across thousands of people. And like, you know, I, as a fellow Iowan, I I like to kind of joke when I do public speaking, I'm like, if I could walk down, you know, the farm roads where my granddad, you know, really spent how many generations back growing this land and tilling this land. if I could walk up to every farmer and say, I could increase your profitability 75% and I can make it so you guys take home 30% more, like just like you make $100 a week, now you make 130%. I would be the most popular kid on the street. And I think I'm actually maybe an ex-presidential candidate. <laughs> but you know, the reality is that like in Nicaragua, where these studies first were happening and now we're doing studies in Rwanda, it's such the low hanging fruit. This infrastructure allows people to go from the uncertainty of like, can I even go to school today? Can my kid come home tonight? Can I go to a market on the day that it's gonna be everyone there? Or maybe I need to risk it and just sell it to whoever walks by. So yeah. the ability to just like know, like I for sure can go there produces a tremendous amount of dignity for people. Like I don't have to risk like being super conservative and hoarding my food just in case it rains and I'm isolated. you can actually start to participate in the economy and you're doing it for the people that have the least cause they're the most isolated. They have the least healthy families, the poorest families, and also the least educated families. And you're helping to take people born on the wrong side of the tracks giving them the opportunity to be right there with everyone else. And so that's like just such a cool, awesome thing to do when you wake up every day. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So can you explain the feeling, which I know it's hard to explain a feeling probably, because it's probably a very um, complex feeling, but when that bridge is finished and when people are able to access it and walk across it, because you're there, right? Or your team's there, right? When that, that day occurs, right?
1: yeah what does that feel like it's just like this such deep sense of um it's like both a mix of humility like wow i can't believe i get to be part of this it's like humbling that's better so humbling uh but it's also like some pride you know like i don't want to call it ego but it's like wow we collectively did this and i think you know when um we'll probably get to this in a little bit but when when i was in that imax film and dream big film crew comes down with me to haiti They were really interested ahead of time. Imagine like an American film crew, really smart, really prepared. They wanna know like, what are the shots? What are the things we need to be prepared for? And I was like, well, let me tell you. I was like, I can't tell you what the stories are gonna be. I can't tell you who's gonna tell you what. Like, I just can't even predict it. But trust me, having we've now built 330 of these bridges. Like there's some themes. And one of the themes is just have your cameras ready that first day when those kids go across that bridge and it clicks because you kind of have to imagine like if, if you, you can see pictures like even if we have pictures of other bridges and even if we have all these diagrams they've been spending months as a community digging holes carrying rocks building up these like what the heck is this because they've never many people have never seen a cable supported structure in these rural remote environments like they're kind of complex mm-hmm. and so it doesn't click for even people like the laborers working on these projects, it's often like, we trust you, we know it's gonna happen. And then those cables go across in the matter of two to three days, you then have essentially a bunch of, what we call them hangers, stringers, that are cross beams. And then you put the actual deck across it. And this IMAX film crew, they kept asking like, what is the shots on, you know, on inauguration day? I was like, oh oh, don't you worry, these kids running across this bridge and the hope and joy that they show on their faces and the realization that this is their new reality will tell your whole story for you. And I think of that that is like the felt experience that you can, I think that you can get when you either you're watching it on Netflix or whether you had the chance to watch it in the IMAX film screen, it's, it's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, it's kind of like we, as a community of engineers here in the United States, helping engineers and and laborers and and masons around the world are making possible connection that, I don't want to say it's unimaginable, but it takes some creative imagining for a lot of rural community members to see access as a permanent solution.
0: Yeah, well, and it's like so many of us as engineers, we want to be helpers, we want to change the world, you know, we just want, we want to be able to help people, and that is just I mean, that's like a life mission and that's, you know, at the very core of it. And I got to say, during that movie, um, cue the
1: one day song and those shots and I was
0: a mess.
1: <laughs> My wife watched it. We had to go on this film tour, of like when it came out of the Smithsonian and like you're going city to city pre-COVID, obviously. And she came to me with a couple of them. And... I don't think I'm throwing under her the under the bus to say this, but she would just weep through that whole sequence every time, I think she saw it like 10 times. And then it came out on Netflix and I tell you what, I find her like with my mother-in-law off in the den, going through and watching dream big sequences, she's like weeping again. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be an engineer to really appreciate the impact of, you know, a change reality for people and it keeps getting you yeah, over and over. Uh
0: so do you feel like that, like those feelings uh, and like when that happens, when you see how it impacts, does that fuel you for the next one then?
1: Uh, I think what fueled me in the beginning is certainly different than what fuels me now. Like being in this now 14, 15 years, I think um, in the beginning, I wanted to be the person putting that last deck board in the middle to make that connection from one side to the other. And then it kind of changed and it was like, hmm, is this about me or is this about the community and the people who are trying to train to do this? And so kind of changed a little bit. So now I still wanted to be there, let's be clear. I really wanted to be there, but I wanted to have a little bit of like, oh, but look, they did it and I got to witness. And I think, you know, my understanding of the, you know, the power structure in any kind of impact work, I really had to start thinking uh, pretty seriously about you know, who is in this and why and for what in, what end goal. And I'd say today, I get the most satisfaction about the fact that right now, even in a time of COVID, I have a team of Rwandans and East Africans more generally in Rwanda building bridges in there is not an expatriate there and they don't need us. Like that's not why I am part of this organization now. I get a lot of satisfaction by telling the story or finding a, you know, finding a family who's like, I want to have our family legacy be this bridge and helping them you know, be able to support this bridge in another part of the world that they otherwise might not ever see or be connected to and being able to make those um, kind of more figurative bridging connections now and say, hey, I brought the resource for that. That's what I do is I help to tell the story for people who have power and privilege and we've all been deeply blessed By the fact that we were born in this country, we have already a huge leg up from so many people in the world. And to be able to make that, uh, you know, figurative bridge into a literal one is really where I get my fuel today. Um, So call me back in five years, 10 years, it (laughs) will change. (laughs) But I think you kind of have to reinvent yourself and you have to, you know, I think it's incumbent upon each of us to really look deeply at, you know... um, our assumptions and to think about like, how are we complicit into some of the power dynamics that we inherit? And also if there is complicity, how can we change it? So that's an active, that's active work for me daily. Yeah. I think you
0: brought up a couple of really interesting things there. So one, you were kind of talking about how, like self-sufficiency. So once it's built, they're trained so that they can do maintenance, right? So like you said, in COVID, like right now it's difficult for people to travel, but local people in their communities can service these bridges, right? So that they are still functioning. And so you're, you're teaching them life skills too and self-sufficiency, which is a super amazing concept. Um, and then the other thing that you're talking about people, you know, leaving a legacy. So, um, as far as funding, like, do you, most of your funding, does that come from pri- private sources or from grants or is it a mixture of both? Yeah,
1: it's actually, we, we kind of talk about it as, um, maybe like four legged stool. Hopefully not ever anyone totally knocks off, but, um, for me, we have, what we consider a big individual giving program. And so that's a huge part of how we just know that we're gonna be okay, even in times like right now. And it's it's just ten dollars a month, ten dollars a year, someone being able to afford a hundred dollars a month and just saying that we commit to and want to continue doing this important work and we're with you on the journey. We kind mm-hmm. of, you know, consider it like a a long-term partnership and they get to see the stories of impact and be part of it. And that individual giving Uh, You know, can be a school room in Iowa, that can be a family, that could be even a big family foundation that says, hey, this is going to be something we're doing on the long run. We also have individual donors who, like, you know, it's a lot, maybe they're not deep in their philanthropy yet, and they say, we're going to make a one-time gift. And sometimes those gifts are quite significant. They could be right, like paying for a whole bridge. Um, And that is not insignificant for us is to be able to find individuals who say, you know, we're philanthropic. We want to leave a legacy. We want to really, you know, make a big impact on the world. We're attracted to the fact that you build a bridge. It's there 30 years. We're attracted that that bridge creates enough income in that community to pay for itself in the first two years. So it's like really a multiplier, you know, for especially very, very strategic philanthropists. We have a lot of individuals, and I'll get to this in a bit, foundations, who say, we just care most about how to create economic prosperity. We don't care how you do it. Oh, and by the way, bridges are the most cost-effective way to create economic prosperity for the poor. The third bucket is companies. Um, We've really made, I'd I'd say we've grown up with architects, engineers, and contractors. Uh, That's how we've learned our craft. Like We've actually worked with the world's most innovative and well-known bridge engineers and we work with people who've actually built um, you know bridges and power lines and things here in the united states who've transferred their skills helped us build our processes our standard you know techniques and designs um, and so forth and meanwhile their company supports projects in this kind of mutually beneficial exchange so you know individual small donors individual big donors companies and then our fourth bucket is foundations so we've been really fortunate that there's a bit of a trend in the nonprofit world where it doesn't matter if your habitat for humanity or the humane shelter or bridges to prosperity, we're really held to a higher standard of accountability and metrics. So you can't just tell a good marketing story and be like, but trust me, um, <laughs> for the big sophisticated foundations, people who give away money professionally, you really have to be able to understand what comes from what you do. So you build a bridge, no one cares people cross that bridge interesting where are they crossing to oh they're crossing they're actually having higher incomes they're going you know they have access to markets access to healthcare, access to schools so do people have the data collection processes and also the sophistication to track that and be able to capture what we call attribution so what happens with a bridge compared to without and being able to go to a donor who may never have thought a bridge isn't a cost effective way to change the world and say hey you could put your money in these 10 things but Bridge's to prosperity actually creates the most wealth, most cost efficiently. So, those four buckets um, have really sustained us. And you know, COVID's tough because I think all four get cut when people are difficult with the economic times. But we're really optimistic. You know, people will continue to find ways to give.
0: Yeah. Um, so, how's that affected the actual bridge building? Then, um, like, have you our projects on?
1: hold or are you like like, what's happening there (laughs) yeah so just just like here pretty much every country had to designate for themselves what is considered critical critical services critical employees um and in both uganda and rwanda uh, bridge building was deemed an essential service so we had a really like kind of um i'm sure like so many leaders across the world had to have some soul searching like wow they want us to go back to work, and you know, here I am in Colorado. I'm certainly not going out in public, um, and so we really had to like first say what's the right move, and then the right move for us was to continue building because communities being able to be connected to have that healthcare provision should it be necessary is time critical. But how are we going to do that safely? So we don't put people in harm's way. And that was a big learning, very quick, you know, sprinting marathon, as we like to say, it's like, go fast for a long time to figure that out. But like, how do you thermally scan anyone that enters our construction site? How do you make sure everyone has their own personal protective equipment that rotates on a few hour basis? How do you make sure everyone's trained how to keep um, physical distancing? How do you make sure people understand the importance of hand washing and frequency and these things that aren't in their own right terribly complex, but here we are trying to dig trenches to build anchors and pour anchors. And normally you could have six people in that, you know, in that benched excavation and today you can do two. Mm-hmm. And normally you're able to just have this chain of people handing a rock to the next, to the next, to the next, and they're touching each other. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. And so the reality is that we feel a commitment to our partners in our countries. to government have said we would like to keep moving. We feel obliged to meet them there. But we are definitely slower and it's definitely more expensive in order to meet that same, let's call it like demand and expectation that it was six months ago. So it's hard, but, um, you know, slow, but what did they say? Slow, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> some i saying, I don't yeah. know. i i I catch ya. i know what you're saying um
0: i I, yeah because it's not like there's uh probably restroom facilities right there to wash your hands with a bunch of soap and let the water run for (laughs) 20 seconds or whatever happy birthday song whatever it's supposed to be like your your resources are so different and so limited compared to what we have here so that's that i didn't even think of that challenge that you have to deal with too so
1: think about the supply chain around soap or you know, like not that you could actually find hand, sanit- hand sanitizer in East Africa right now, but if you could, how do you get it to the rural context because aforementioned we're working in places that you're not driving to yeah so, so it we call it the, yeah we talk we call it the last mile, you can think okay. of it in two ways like that's kind of the, the context where we live and work is the last mile, so how do you that's kind of using Coca-Cola as a figurative example. The very last mile that Coca-Cola needs to get to reach the last billion people, they're crossing our bridges. But you could also switch that and call it the first mile. The first mile where a billion people start in order to get to school, In order to get to a market and so whether you think of it as last mile or first mile you know that's a big challenge of like in the time of COVID we can't get PPE couldn't get PPE for our own healthcare professionals here in the United States for a number of weeks if not months how are you going to get it to the countries that are landlocked and everything is shut down and let alone 10% of the population already is isolated it's a it's a a quagmire yeah (laughs) Well, yeah, I commend you
0: all for uh, keeping, keeping business as much usual as you can. Like, that just seems like such an undertaking. So way to go. Like (laughs) everyone else, new normal. (laughs) So I would ask you what you're passionate about, but I think um, you've found Uh a way to mix (laughs) work and passion, but is there anything unexpected or like a hobby or something that maybe, Like, what do you do in your free time?
1: (laughs) Um, This is going to sound a little weird. I flip houses. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that is actually unexpected, but I find it really creative. Um, So I started doing it when I was really young. Uh, It was a way because I I was being paid like $500 a month from Bridges to Prosperity because I'm essentially a volunteer, you know, like anything charitable. You're never going to, anyone listening out there that has aspirations to be a nonprofit worker, do it because you love it. (laughs) <laughs> Not because you're gonna make a lot of money, and so I got started um, just like buying a tiny little home and fixing it up as I went. I was living there, and um, the what do I do in my free time? It's I know how to do everything from frame a wall to drywall it to tile it to you know I'm looking around the house right now. I know how to do electrical switches and outlets now. That's a fairly recent thing. Um, I sure, can paint pretty well, but you know I think it's a kind of a work. It's a bit of a I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory word, but like I have a much more blue collar upbringing and I really enjoy the tactile doing. That's I think why I went to art school is I like the feel of doing something. And as my role, especially at Bridges Prosperity, went from I'm there carrying the rock, doing the thing into more enabling Mm -hmm. the lack of the tactile feel, the touch, the, like, I did this today thing made me even more excited about how can you, like, design a new kitchen in a way that is more, you know, natural to flow through in a way that other people and myself would enjoy living in more. Um, So I do that a lot. Okay. Yeah. There's other things, but I'm I'm kind of a busy bee, so I'm always in motion.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, with doing the house flipping, do you feel like that ties in your creative outlet then? Or like, is that what um, you use to funnel the creative outlet?
1: Well, you didn't ask, but you know, I, I'm an a- active journaler, as I okay. think a lot of people probably are. I have journals back to like 16, but I started doing entire sections. This is kind of I'm funny. The enchi- entire sections. <laughs> of- <laughs> You know, like I want to design houses and rooms and how would I put them together and here are floor plans and here's oh stairs and like, you know, you kind of start to get your arms around it. And if you really love it, like I do, then I become compulsive and then I do 3D isometric drawings of what I think it's going to look like when I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> so you get an idea. It's a little bit like a... You know, I think design. I I could I could draw bridges till I was blue in the face, and I do still. Um, but there's a little bit of creativity of space and movement and imagining what's not there yet. And that's why I think STEM fields more generally is that you know engineers were taught not only to look at a problem like ooh that house is terrible, but be like ooh how are, what's the solution. And that's the creative lego part of the whole thing is like you get a set of things and once you kind of figure out the patterns and you get to figure out the um the kind of infinite number of solutions there's no one right answer as you're well aware in engineering and that's so liberating you know like there's not one right kitchen design yeah i could draw that till you know the cows come home and it's still not perfect or correct you know it's just like what do i like the most so and there's yeah. always just something just waiting to be discovered, right? Like yeah. something, Like an idea
0: like, oh, like this would look really cool right here. And that's gratifying to get that, I love that it. thought too, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I,
1: I, yeah.
0: Anyway. Okay. So who would be, like if you were to pick one person that inspires you, who would be one person that inspires you?
1: So you did a good job of prepping me on the basic framing of what we're going to talk about. And this is the one that I like you know, slept with, woke up with, went back to bed with. And I think like, you know, there's a lot of maybe more popular figurative people in the world that I, I prepared to sound smart and clever and well-educated. But when I really came to my core, you know, I think my mom is the person who really has like been most informative in my like, you know, sense of self-belief and curiosity and like the unconditional support that she provided for me throughout what, um, I am, sh- I'm sure was not an easy parenting journey. I was a late bloomer as it comes to things of respect and, and um, you know, I, I think I was a little ornery, uh, put lately, and I think like just to, to, to reflect now in hindsight, how she handled a lot of energy and a lot of personality and a lot of opinion in a very small body and still didn't, you know, put me into any sort of um, space that felt like felt closing. My doors were always open. My world was bigger. And I think it's now in my, like, you know, later, like imagining being a parent myself, I'm like, wow, like, I don't know if I have the capacity to be that open and that generous of spirit. And so, um, it might not be as, uh, well known of a character as some of the people I was prepared to talk about, but I think my mom has been just such a, you know, inspiration and in person, I really hope to be even, you know, slightly as as good of a mother as she is, so. I love
0: that, and and it sounds like she had the end game in mind. <laughs> yeah,
1: she's like, get her out of the house, get her out. No,
0: <laughs> no. knowing that you, like, it, uh, eventually all of that tenacity is going to pay off and do very good thing, or you'll help you to do very good, amazing things, <laughs> but I, I love the word that you said, curiosity, though, too. I think that, like, Fostering that curiosity is so important, and that is a skill for sure, so.
1: I can imagine all the whys, you know, you're on kids, like, it's like, why that, why that? Like, I, I just, like, my first gut hit, it's like, no more whys, just because, you know, like, that's like, I can go there pretty quick, and the space that was created for me to be curious, and to pull things apart, and to put them back together, and just the chaos. I cannot even imagine the Lego chaos, Um, so I over... <laughs> I want both my parents to be very clear. They both are really generous, um, but, you know.
0: That's awesome. So, I have just a funny little story about Legos. So, I have two kids, and they um, they play, well, not so much anymore, but they used to play with Legos all the time, and we were under a tornado warning at one point, and my housekeeping skills were less than stellar. So, the whole basement was Legos everywhere, and I was like, I don't know where we're gonna go. We're supposed to go to the basement, but I feel like we have like shrapnel in our basement. <laughs> if there's an actual tornado, we are not in a good situation. So um, those things are sharp. People yes. don't think
1: about those little tiny streamling <laughs> edges or I don't want to be I don't want to be sliced by Legos either.
0: No, no, I don't think it would be good. So Anyway, I don't want to take up any more of your time, Avery. I really appreciate you sitting down. And this has been invigorating, inspiring, and amazing. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Keep inspiring youth. I know you do a lot of that. And connecting people. So thanks so much for joining us. It's totally my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.